Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, podcast listeners? Today, we welcome back our guest from episode 77, which also happens to be my favorite number because it's Hall of Fame, Carl Mecklenburg, Denver Bronco. have the jersey hanging somewhere in my closet. Anyway, our guest is the founder of the Acquire Funds, serves as PM of the Deep Value Strategy. He's also got a deep voice, and he's the author of the websites, Acquires Multiple and Greenbacked, and several books, including Deep Value, Why Activist Investors and Other Contrarians Battle for Control of Losing Corporations. Welcome back to the show, Toby Carlisle. Thanks for the great introduction, man. That was awesome. Yeah. Tobes, what's up, man? You're here in LA, and congratulations. You've got some news. You just launched a public fund. What were you thinking? I don't know. I was following your lead. I always say Meb Faber lives seven years in the future, so I'm roughly seven years behind you. Well, I don't know what attracted to you about this idea of just, it's almost like slowly drowning or getting waterboarded, but welcome to the party. Glad to see you chose an ETF. Talk to us. What's going on? By the time this podcast drops, it's already going to be out. Is the ticker symbol T-O-B-Y? (laughs) The ticker symbol is ZIG, Z-I-G, as in ZIG when the market zags. And the fund is called the Acquirer's Fund, which is a play on my Acquirer's Multiple. So the idea is basically it's a deep value fund, but the wrinkle in this one is it's long, short, and it's US equities. It's 130.30. So it's a long biased fund, but I wanted to put the shorts in there because I do think that the shorts add something very interesting to the fund. I think it adds a little bit of alpha in up markets, but particularly in down markets, it really stands up. So the long side, because that's the stuff that I've focused on most and written about most in Deep Value and and Quantitative Value, which is a book that I wrote with our, our friend Wes Gray back in 2012. So the idea was that quantitative value in particular, we went through and we found every bit of academic and industry research that we could find on fundamental and value investment strategies, stuff that was decades old to update it and see if it still worked. And some of it had stopped working. Some of it probably never did work because it was data mined at the time that it came out. And we built a model that ended up being QVAL, which was Wes's strategy. And I was sort of interested as we were going through that process that there are a lot of counterintuitive things that occurred. And basically, when you're in the deep value world, sometimes worse on a fundamental level means better stock price performance. And and I think the reason is that people just give up on these companies. So we're looking for things that are depressed at a business level. So the business is having some sort of problem because, say, uh, the industry is no good or They think there's some competitor, some new entrant that might be a dot-com style competitor that's going to put them out of business permanently. And we try to buy them when it looks darkest. And then we hope that we get a little bit of mean reversion and the business improves and we get a little bit of better performance from the discount to the intrinsic value. 
And so as both of those close, that's how we generate returns on the long side. And I use as my screening methodology, this thing called the acquirer's multiple. So when we tested all these different price ratios, the one that we found that worked the best was enterprise value on EBIT. And that's what I call the acquirer's multiple. Basically, it's a metric that's similar to the one that private equity guys use and activists use to find undervalued targets. It's a metric that sort of looks through to find cash on the balance sheet and operating income that so the company might not be profitable at the very bottom line, but it could still be generating good accounting. And then we make sure that's matched with cash earnings. We do a full valuation after that, a holistic valuation that looks at balance sheet, looks at the financial strength and so on, looks at the cash flow, looks at the income to make sure that that's all there, make sure they're buying back stock so they're taking advantage of that undervaluation. So we like shareholder yield too was one of the metrics, which I know that's a metric that you that you like. And so our long book is a very traditional sort of deeply undervalued portfolio of a lot of older style companies, big, solid, cash flowing share buyback type companies. The short side. Let me pause you real quick. Talk to me a little bit about how that looks. So how many names do you own? Are they equal weighted? And I think you mentioned this, but it's quant and discretionary as well. Right. So we screen first to pull up those names and then in a previous life, I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, and the life of a junior mergers and acquisitions lawyer is going through and doing diligence. And that means you go through all the documents, you try to find anything that's sort of hidden in the management discussion analysis, hidden in the notes. And so that's part of the process to try and pull things that natural language into what should rightly be treated as liabilities or sometimes even assets that should be pulled in. Just to make sure, because I think that the problem with many quant approaches is that the metric can be fooled by things that can't be pulled in, that otherwise we would all agree are genuine liabilities or very occasionally assets. So that's an important step of the process. And what it means is that we end up with a portfolio of it's all of the things that if you can think of an industry that everybody hates at the moment, then it's well represented in the portfolio. What's most hated right now? I'm just trying to think of industries. Financials. Financials, really? Lots of financials, lots of insurance, commercial banks, thrifts. I think that maybe energy, energy is pretty. That's what have been my guess. My guess would have been energy. So how many names do you own? We're quite concentrated for, for this style of fund. So it's 30 names long, equal weight to 4.33 recurring at inception to the extent that you can get that sort of level of granularity with positions that get into the fund. But that's what we're aiming to do. And we don't necessarily constrain by industry or by sector, because in my opinion, the way to get the best performance is to concentrate into industries when they get cheap. Companies and industries tend to get cheap together because what ails one ails all of them. So theoretically, you could own 100% in airlines? It would be virtually impossible for that to happen, but I don't think there are enough airlines around. Well, now that WOW went out of business, I was so sad. I was a big WOW flyer over to Iceland. And not surprisingly, when you run $200 across the Atlantic flights from Los Angeles, it's not a viable business model, but- That's a business model of very many (laughs) tech companies at the moment to sell, basically sell below cost run. Okay, I got a million more questions, but fund, is it domestic only? Yeah, so US companies only because I, the research that we've done is based on GAP. So GAP at the moment, GAP is the way that we're doing the analysis and and international companies have some version of IFRS, a local implementation of IFRS. It's just a wrinkle that we haven't solved just yet. So at the moment, it's gap. Well, good. That's a perfect lead-in to an accompaniment. You better launch Zag as the international version. <laughs> I, I assume that's I think what's that's where the... we're going. Good. That's smart. All right. So 
Got a portfolio. You own about 30 names. Let's talk about the shorts. Yeah. Shorts is not something that I've discussed a lot publicly because I think it's a great way to blow yourself up really easily. But the way that we implement it, first, we size them small. Each one is 1% at inception. There are 30 names at 1% at inception. And the sort of names that end up in there, let me tell you how they're chosen first. We look for, it's not the opposite of the long. So it's not just overvalued. To the extent that it's possible to value these companies, they are extremely overvalued. But in many instances, it's just they're not easily valuable because they're not generating any income. They're not making any money at all. For the most part, all that these companies have done is raised money and then burnt it. So the way that we find them is they have really junky balance sheets, you know, negative operating income, negative cash flow. They're issuing stock to stay alive. They're raising debt to stay alive. And then that's not enough. On top of that, we look for things that haven't gone up for a year. And the reason that we do that is that absent that last requirement that I put in there, you find there are lots of companies that are very popular that have terrible financial statements and no value investor could buy them. But somehow they capture the public imagination and they tend to go up a lot every year. And a great example of that is Tesla. That's actually not in the portfolio right now. So I'm going to talk about it as an example, but it's a terrible financial statements, losing money, in a highly capital intensive business, raising capital all the time by selling equity and not making a great deal of money on the other side. So even though I think Musk's a genius, I think the company has some real problems and it has been a short up until the formation of this particular portfolio, but it's not in this one. Ah, that's sad. That's too bad. I love, by the way, I have no interest in the stock whatsoever, being a quant. It very well could be in one of our portfolios, but I highly doubt it. But I love the cars. And it's always fascinating to me with a lot of these story stocks because we tweeted out the other day, I'm like, there's like tens of thousands of investment opportunities out there and everyone's obsessed with two. At the time, I think it was Tesla and Bitcoin. I don't know what the other one is now, Tesla and something else, but there's probably so many other just junky, terrible companies. What general sectors or to the extent you could list any names, what's the process? Like, How do you, how do you treat the shorts? Do you treat them differently? What's the exit cover criteria? Talk a little bit about the process and how it may, may be different than the long process. Definitely need to be much more careful with shorts than with long. So with a long, if it goes bad, you can just hide under the covers and the worst thing that happens is it goes to zero. With a short, the mistakes keep on getting bigger and bigger in the portfolio. So at some stage, you have to kind of deal with that problem. A lot of that's taken away by the way that we rebalance. So the rebalancing is done on a quarterly basis. So we also screen out the most heavily shorted because those are the borrower is just too expensive and they're too popular. They're driven too much by sentiment. What we want is something where the narrative is very positive, but the narrative is completely divorced from the underlying reality of the company, which is reflected in the financial statements. It can't be a very positive narrative either because you want them eventually to reflect the underlying terrible business that's actually in the financial statements. So that's why we look for something that hasn't gone up for about a year if that is the case, then I think that that illustrates that investors are getting a little tired of the story. They sort of need to do something special and they're unlikely to do that for the most part because they've just run out of cash. They're burning cash. They're heavily indebted. They need to issue stock to stay alive. So that describes a few companies in the portfolio. Snapchat is in the portfolio, Grubhub, Dropbox, lots of those sort of software internet type businesses. It's not to say that those businesses can't revive. It's just that at the time that they're in, the, 
the price and the value are so far divorced and the value is deteriorating that I think it's a reasonable bet for a quarter ahead. You're starting to see a lot of these super high price to revenue stocks. There seems to be a lot of targets out there. Are you finding just from a general standpoint, what's the broad opportunity set look like? I think it's good. I think it's extremely good on the short side. And I think that now is a particularly good time because I do think that we can look at any of the, most of the listings that have come to market over the last year or two have traded well down. So Blue Apron, Snapchat, and more recently Lyft and Tesla have really stumbled out of the gate. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up fresh wounds as a Lyft (laughs) shareholder who's locked in for five more months. You know, it's funny because I go back to my late nineties college student, you know, my favorite Shorting strategy was shorting these IPO lockups where you haven't seen a similar world really since then, where you have all these companies that were coming to market that just were losing tons of money. It was worse in the 90s. You had so many that just at least a lot of the big companies now have real revenues and in some cases, real earnings growth. Back then, there was neither. Many of them do, not the ones in my portfolio, but that is right. Like, So you could say, well, Netflix is in the same boat, right? But I think the underlying core of Netflix is a very, very good business, even though I don't think the financial statements are that great. The core of the business is excellent. Like that sort of subscription, recurring revenue subscription, that's potentially a very good business. I'm not entirely sold on it, but I do think it's got potential. Amazon's another one that's phenomenal business, even though I think it's probably very expensive, but you'd be a maniac to try and short something like those two. Yeah. The shorting, it takes a certain mindset. All my short friends are always a little bit crazy. I'll put you in that bucket. There's always like a little bit of wiring that's just like, I feel like it just doesn't doesn't hit the normal synapses the same way. But you have to, I think you have to think that way. Otherwise, I'm the opposite. I'm like, the world's easiest optimist. Every single stock pitch I hear, I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. So that's why I'm a quant. <laughs> I, I'm the same, but there's this, I'm a value guy too. And I think the financial statements tell the truth. Like I really do. I think that for long periods of time, and this is an unusually long period of time where the financial statements haven't been a limiting factor on the stock price. But I think that in the ordinary course, the price can't fly above the reality of the company forever. It has to come back down eventually. And if it doesn't, then value investing doesn't work. And there's a chance that value investing hasn't worked for five years. So maybe value investing doesn't work. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, it's been an unusually long period of time. I mean, you can pick a ratio, the way price to book value. The, the FAMA French data shows that price to book value has had its worst 10-year period ever in the data. And it's actually negative over those 10 years, which is sort of difficult to fathom. But then there's also the prop there are guys like O'Shaughnessy Asset Management have raised some serious issues with price to book value as a metric for for uncovering a low price to book for uncovering value. Then you could look at any other flow metric like price to cash flow or price to income, price to dividend sort of broken to the extent that it ever worked. Those metrics that I think are probably still good metrics still have this incredible underperformance, unprecedented in data going back 60, 70, 80 years, where they're now underperforming a negative over a five-year period and looking very ugly over a 10-year period. So it's sort of almost an existential question, do these things ever start working again? And I think that when you start feeling that way, when you start thinking that way, when value investing is kind of a punchline. I do think that that's getting close to the point where value investing is about to start working again. Well, I tweeted out this morning, I got a note from Sockgen 
that said the value momentum combination strategies have struggled for most of 2019 recording one of the worst starts to a year ever this falls an already very difficult 2018 and you had a blog post on price to cash flow recently which said in december last year the value decile portfolios foreign and price cash flow hit its worst performance relative to glamour decile ever going back to 1951 underperforming by 59% since June 2014. And the latest data to February, it recovered a little, but it's still underperforming the tune of 57%. I mean, some of this rhymes in my mind to, I mean, look how much Buffett underperformed the Qs in the late 90s. It was something like 150 percentage points. What do you think are the main drivers of this spread? And obviously, this is just gossip and speculation, but what do you think could be any potential catalysts? I mean, these are often obvious in retrospect. That's the question, right? The, there's two answers that one, what is the cause of it? That's a much more difficult question to answer. What is the reason for the massive spread that exists now? So the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued is as wide as it has been since the dot-com, the peak of the dot-com boom. And so after that, it was a very good period of time for value investors. You could be a long-only value investor and see your portfolio going up when the market was falling over. But the reason for that at the time was because value stocks were unusually undervalued. They were The strategy was as cheap as it had been for a very long period before then in the data. Probably it was unprecedented at the time. That's not the scenario that we have at the moment. Unfortunately, what has happened is that the value stocks are still pretty rich relative to their long-run average. So they're roughly 50% overvalued relative to their long-run average. But the spread is still incredibly wide. And the, the thing that is driving that is the overvaluation of the most expensive stocks. And so there are multiple causes of that. And I talked to lots of people about that's sort of the, the first question I ask everybody that I meet, what are the causes of that? And the answer, the best one I think comes from Michael Green, who's at Teal Capital Management. He says, it's, uh, it's passive flows. They're just chasing the market capitalization weighted index like the S&P 500, Russell 1000, whatever it might be. The flows go to the biggest companies, which tend to be the ones that are the most overvalued. And they don't flow to the smallest companies, which tend to be more undervalued. And he thinks that that's sort of reaching a tipping point where it'll never go back into stasis. I don't subscribe to that theory, but I understand what he's saying. He says that the passive gets so big eventually that the fundamental investors, value investors, can't sort of guide it back into, into place. I don't think that's actually what's going to happen because I think that instead what happens is what happens every single time. It just gets too big and it falls over under its own weight. And when that happens, the way to capture that spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued will be in a long, short portfolio, which is why I've implemented the shorts. Yeah, we talk a lot about market cap weighting and how it's suboptimal here. I agree with you on the stance of market cap often leads to overvaluation of the biggest stocks. And it also, but I differ on all the people who pull their hair out and gnash their teeth about passive because in my mind, markets always succumb to gravity and people are capitalists at the end of the day. And those th sort of things can only last so long before you have the next generation's Apple which may be a $200 million company that starts exploding and becomes ascendant. And so people obviously are going to invest in that. Now, whether that's Impossible Foods, which just announced today that <laughs> Katy Perry Impossible was investing. Yeah. I love the Impossible Burger. The Beyond Burger, I think, is mediocre. But we did a poll on my Twitter and 75% said they'd preferred Impossible over Beyond. But it's funny because they were trying to raise money in a billion-dollar valuation. Beyond went public. 
they were then able to raise money to two billion dollar valuations. They doubled their valuation just because of Beyond. And I actually saw the valuation going off on private markets. So they have some a handful of these private marketplaces where you can buy and sell stock where they were trying to sell it at $4 billion. So the late stage private seems like a prelude to- It's pretty frothy. Yeah. So again, the catalysts are always obvious in retrospect. Maybe it's the massive flows going into Zig will put pressure on <laughs> these companies, but you never know, right? I feel like I don't see any major catalysts, but then again, i probably wouldn't. As you say, they're only visible in hindsight. There's a great Bob at Above the Markets has written a great post that came out maybe two or three years ago where he talked about uh, Felon, who Michael J. Felon, P-H-E-L-A-N, not F-E-L-O-N, who was the president of the NYSE in the 1987 crash, which is now, everybody says now, well, that was program trading that caused that, right? It was cascading selling in the futures market. That was the first time, I think, maybe that people were able to hedge their long equity positions. And he was asked at the time what he thought the causes of it were. And he listed five and none of them were program trading. And he said, it's just one of those things that it's like a, how can you identify which grain of sand makes the sand pile tumble? You can't. It's just the straw that ultimately breaks the camel's back. The camel's back is not visible until well after the fact. We might be wrong about what the eventual cause is. Sometimes these things just collapse under their own weight. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the research has shown that high valuations lead to markets being more fragile, where they have a bigger chance of a big fat drawdown over the ensuing three to five years. Spitznagel has some research like that, right? That's exactly what Spitznagel shows. The scale of the drawdown increases as the market gets more overvalued. That sounds crazy to even say that, like that's an idea that you've got to tell people, like, of course, that's the case. The more overvalued it gets, the further it's going to fall before it hits fair value. It seems like basic arithmetic, but I, I always scratch my head when people talk about globally, I'm of the opinion, obviously, that I think a lot of some of these really cheap markets around the world are a better opportunity. And they always say, well, those are so risky. And I say, well, actually, the evidence is usually that expensive markets are quite a bit more fragile. And it doesn't matter even the metric you use, where on the valuation side, you could use any of them. Let's talk a little bit about your process. So I'm familiar. I've read all of your lengthy works, but you, you talk about liking. Who is it that doesn't like your preferred metric? Is it Munger who claims to not like enterprise value to EBIT? Well, Buffett and Munger have some criticisms of it, and it's worthwhile dealing with those. They don't like EBITDA, and there's, there's two reasons why they don't like EBITDA. One is that in the LBO craze in the 80s, it was used as a justification for paying a too high price. And they said, if you're using your EBITDA to fund debt payments, like EBITDA assumes that you're able to make, it includes depreciation expense, which that doesn't mean that you, even though it's a non-cash expense, you do have to make CapEx. Like that's a real expense that you have to pay. You can delay it a little bit, but ultimately you have to pay it. And I have no quibble with that. I think that's, that's an accurate description. You shouldn't over-lever these companies. So I don't look for things that are over-levered. I look for things that, if anything, they have net cash on the balance sheet. And the other criticism that they have is that EBITDA, and this is more of a 90s criticism, EBITDA is a metric that's non-GAAP. Management tell you what they think EBITDA is. And I think the easy solution to that is to ignore what management tell you and do the calculation yourself. The only reason to do the calculation and the reason I like it is it makes different companies with different capital structures, different tax payments, different levels of debt and equity. It just makes them comparable on a like-for-like -like basis. It's not the only metric I use. I want to make sure that the cash flow is there. The thing is, 
I just don't like a DCF. So I think a DCF, which everybody holds up as sort of the gold standard of valuation, I don't think that it is. I think that the gold standard of valuation is cash return on invested capital. So if you compare, you have a 10-year treasury bill yielding 5% and you have a company that's earning a 10% cash return on invested capital, that company should be worth approximately two times what the 10, two times its own equity. So if it's trading at some discount to that, that's a company that you can buy. If you think that in the future, it can continue to maintain that, ca- that, that high cash return on invested capital. The problem with using return on invested capital, and, and I'm using a variation of it there to describe that, is that it's highly mean reverting, which means that when it's very high, and that's a company that you might want, it trends back towards the mean, it trends back towards the average. So what you're doing is you're buying something where the valuation tends to drop. So there's about 4% of companies that avoid that. Everybody knows roughly who they are and everybody pays a lot of money for them because they compound and grow pretty sustainably over time. For the other 96% of companies, you want something trading. You want to buy it in a trough because it's better performance is in front of it because it's going to tend to mean revert up. It's going to do better over time. So as a value guy, forward-looking, my valuation, I want to try and buy something closer to its trough than its peak. How much sort of turnover exists in your world? Are you sloth-like, like the Bunger and Muffets claim to be? Are you a bit more active? And is it different for the longs and the shorts? The turnover, it's about 50% on both at each rebalance date. And part of that is that you need a series of quarterly results to have an idea about the performance of the position that you have on. So it's entirely possible. So I think about 50% of the positions that we put on are going to be mistakes. I think we've got a hit rate of about 50%. It's just that we hope that we make more money on the ones that work than we lose on the ones that don't work. So it's a question of magnitude and frequency. We think that the magnitude of our winners is going to be much more than the frequency of our winners. So winners about 50% of the time. So we might put a position on we're always putting these positions on when it looks darkest, that they're not great businesses long and they're businesses that are putting on short that we know that they're terrible businesses, but we think that they're massively overvalued. Now, it's entirely possible that in between those two quarters, something happens that changes our view on them. And if that happens, then we're going to take it out of the portfolio. If I had Buffett's genius, I wouldn't need to do that, but I don't, so I do. I'm trying to think of that, like the beauty of having this process where you're somewhat immune to the nausea of buying some of these companies. Are there any examples that you can look back on in in your investment history where you just bought some just disgusting name and it either worked out great or terrible? You're just like, oh my God, I don't want to buy this. I remember we were doing quant screens over a decade ago and big dog t-shirts kept picking up. And I was like, that's a public company. I didn't even know that's a public company. And I was like, God, I don't want to, I mean, it's probably not anymore. This is literally a decade ago. I'm like, God, I really don't want to buy that stock. It's the most absurd, preposterous company. How I don't even remember how it, the outcome was, but what are some names, either current or historical, that come to mind when you think of like really hard investments you just don't want to make? It happens all the time. When I, when I was just starting out, I, I like the old Graham Nets. That's a great way to get to understand how deep value works because Graham net nets are companies that are trading at an incredibly depressed valuation. So the net net is net of the net current asset value, which is the most liquid portion of the balance sheet. It's cash, receivables, and inventory. And then you're trying to buy at a two-thirds discount from that after backing out all the liabilities. So it's an incredibly depressed price. The kind of companies that get depressed like that 
are terrible businesses. There's no question about that. And the, the research shows that if they're unprofitable, they do better than the profitable ones. And if they're non-dividend payers, they do better than the dividend payers. So it's an upside down topsy-turvy world. So every time I would put one of those on, I would think for sure this is the one that doesn't work. And then just because the business sort of improves a little bit, turns around a little bit, a few quarters later, they're a completely different business. And people are like, well, maybe now this is something that maybe we should be valuing this on an earnings power basis. And maybe this is something that is going to do a lot better. By that stage, typically, I'm selling it out and trying to buy something else. So many, many times I bought something at Biotech at a big discount to cash. They make a discovery or they get taken out. That happened all the time. So now often we do the opposite with Biotech in the short portfolio. If the Biotech is issuing stock to stay alive, for whatever reason, it doesn't look like they're going to make it. They so, I think that there's still hope often that they're going to be able to do something. And I think that's a good time to short it. Just brought back a memory. I was recently in the Morningstar conference and we were talking about dividends and buybacks. And I think there's obviously a positive screen on shareholder yield, which is can be agnostic, whether it's dividends or net buybacks. But a question from the audience, and I joked half-heartedly, but half-seriously, as they talked about negatively screening against companies that are just issuing a ton of shares. And the example that he gave was a lot of the mining companies that are just serial issuers that just puke out shares outstanding all the time. And I said, be careful because someone pretty soon, probably Global X, will launch a, a shareholder yield gold miner, junior gold miner fund. But I was like, it'd probably be a pretty good idea because a lot of people forget that Part of the benefit of doing these value screens is, yes, it's all well and good. You're buying the cheap stuff. It's also that you're avoiding the kind of mirror image or things that are the opposite. Well, as you point, I mean, this is a, I think it's a very good signal. Shareholder yield, which is dividends. I'm not telling you, I'm telling the listeners, dividends and buybacks. That's a very strong, positive signal. So a company that's buying back more stock than any other company is a company that's trading cheaply, has the financial wherewithal to do it and has management that's looking after the shareholders. On the other side of the equation, a company that's issuing a lot of stock, so that the negative drag on companies that issue a lot of stock is more than 4% a year, and the positive tailwind on companies that are buying back stock is positive 2.5% a year, which is a very wide spread. And we incorporate both of those into the model on different sides of the model, naturally. Interesting. As you look around, there was a topic that we hit upon briefly that I think is challenging because I've heard both sides of these debates on, and this is something I struggle with, is the topic of some of these factors and throughout time. I mean, the price to book one being an obvious example. Are there cases where you run your screens and you're looking at sort of the discretionary side of this where over time you incorporate new research. Just talk about that process in general. I mean, about how you think about improving what it is that you guys do. And you can feel free to take this as many ways as you would like to. There's two questions there. Right? One is, how often do you override the quantitative model? And the other question is, how do you improve the quantitative model as you go along? So let me deal with those two separately. Improving the quantitative model, constantly testing anytime a new idea comes out test that with all the normal rules for testing, researching in one universe, testing in another universe, trying to do all of the things so that we're not fooling ourselves and then ultimately trying to do things only because they, they make sense to me as a value investor first and foremost. They're not, not sort of a, like I wouldn't do anything that made no 
economic sense to me, but seemed to outperform if it had no reason. I would assume that that was something that was going to be arbitraged away. I'd try to find the economic reason why something would work. And let's take the buyback share issuance one as an example. If I didn't know that there was that positive drift to buybacks, I'd still want to be in a company that was undervalued and buying back stock because logically and intellectually, it makes sense to me that you buy something that's undervalued, that management's buying back stock, that's concentrating the remaining value in my shares without me having to trade. So it's an incredibly tax efficient way of doing it. And the reverse is also true. If you own something and you think there's value there and it's undervalued, if management's issuing stock and they're diluting your holding. The other question is overriding the model. So I'm extremely reluctant to do that. And the reason is that there's this very well-established theory in this, uh, I don't know what the whole area of study is, but basically there's an area of study where they look at the performance of experts versus simple statistical models. And simple statistical models consistently outperform the best experts. Even when the best experts are given access to the simple statistical models, we just override too often. And that theory is known as the broken leg theory. And the idea is best explained by an analogy where when you go to the movies, Meb goes to the movies because he likes action. He doesn't want to go outside when it's raining. He'll go outside if his wife wants to go to the movie. So there's some, we could build some model for when you're prepared to go and watch a movie. And then we discover one weekend you've gone snowboarding or you've gone skiing, whatever you prefer, and you've broken your leg. And then should we be then allowed to override the model because you've broken your leg and the model doesn't consider that piece of information? And the answer is no, you shouldn't. And the reason is, even though that doesn't sound logical or intuitive, the reason is because we find more broken legs than there actually are. And that's particularly true when you're looking at deeply undervalued companies. Every single one of the companies in the portfolio is undervalued for a reason. And so I can identify the reason. Do I therefore then exclude it from the portfolio just because I know why it's undervalued? So the reasons why I can exclude something are extremely constrained to basically the economic reality of the financial statements is fooling the model somehow. So an example of that is insurers. Insurers tend to carry their liabilities off balance sheet, but all their assets are carried on balance sheet. So that's something that looks extremely cheap to some of my metrics. But if we include those liabilities in there as they properly should be, the company is much more expensive. So that's one example of where conducting the diligence and just having that thought process of, is this economic reality reflected in the analysis that we're doing, where it keeps those sort of companies out of the portfolio, where that would be a mistake. Your example was a little on the nose. My wife consistently is like, dude, can we please go see a movie that is not a superhero movie? <laughs> I said, well, there's so many good ones out right now. This is some of the best rated movies. Come on. I had a huge pout because we just went to go see the recent Avengers and I wanted to go to one of those theaters that has the like reclining chairs and there's one near you in uh, Cinemark and obviously we're going on like a Saturday night or something and anyway, I'm still pouting about it. Didn't get to go. Went to some tiny theater where the sound was terrible. So I didn't get to go back in. Your comment is funny because I, I said on Twitter the other day, I said, you know, at some point, if we ever get to large enough scale, let's call it, I don't know, $5, $10 billion. I said, I promise I've always wanted to launch a fund called Random, where we do the old school Wall Street Journal DART, or we could just call it DART, D-A-R-T, see if that's a ticker reserve. I'm reserve both those, R-N-D-M and D-A-R-T, where you just throw a dart against the wall and do the old school journal, where I'm of the opinion, almost any 
methodology will beat market cap weighting by a percent or two over time. Well, as long as you equal weight it, right? Right. So equal weight, 100, 100 stocks, we'll throw a big party each year, 100 people get a throw darts, and that's actually what we buy. I mean, SEC will probably have a problem with that, but I'll say, I don't care. It's my fund. Maybe we'll have to do it a private fund. I don't know. But going back to that concept of what you choose and market cap weighting. But that raises an extremely interesting point. And it's worth thinking about that it's completely anomalous that market cap weighted funds have performed so well. So exponential ETFs have an ETF called reverse cap weighting. RVRS, I think is RVRS is the ticker. And so what they have done is they they find the biggest companies and they weight them the smallest that has the smallest weighting in the in the ETF. And the smallest companies have the biggest weighting. Now, if you believe that equal weight outperforms market cap weight, which it certainly does over the long run, then reverse cap weighting should outperform market cap weighting materially, but it hasn't since inception, which is just goes to show it's a very unusual time in the markets when basis point market cap weighted ETFs are massively outperforming. Yeah. Well, part of it, we say a lot, has to do with structure in the markets. And so market cap weighting, I mean, it is the market, but it has absolutely no tether to reality. And if you were an alien or an Australian and you said, what is what is a reasonable investment strategy? It's a totally nonsensical one. Why would you, I mean, it's literally just price and shares outstanding. It has It's the most nonsensical investing strategy on the planet, but you're guaranteed to own the winners because you're buying everything. And that just gives you the market, but literally almost anything else should outperform that over time. I mean, you and, wouldn't do it that way, right? You'd look at, I think, research affiliates fundamental indexing is a much more sensible approach where you say, let's look at the actual size of this business. And however you might look at that, of course, if you're doing it that way, you're a value investor. So you might as well go fully recognize what you are and implement a value strategy. That's kind of my whole point with dividends. I'm like, if you're going to do value, do value. Don't do some weird stepchild. But you bring up a good point because if you were to ask 100 people off the street, I say, hey, look, the stock market, how is that weighted? Or say the S&P 500, how is the weighting of that? And people would say the biggest companies get the biggest weights. If you were to ask people, I bet 90%, maybe 80% would assume it's actually the research affiliate. It's fundamentally weighted by revenues or earnings. I don't think anyone would say, oh no, it's just the price of the stock times shares outstanding. I bet a non-significant amount of pros would get that wrong as well. I mean, if we took to Twitter, I bet the majority would get it wrong. You'd have to think about how to word it correctly. But I think most people, when we give talks or talk to people, I think they they assume it's the fundamentals driven, but it's not. Well, well, the other thing to note too is that it's not, well, if we're talking about S&P 500, it's not only market cap weight, it's float adjusted too. So that penalizes companies where you have an owner operator who owns a material chunk of the company. That's not counted towards their, their market capitalization weighting. And then companies that have no owner operator that completely run by managers, which typically underperform, those are the companies that occupy the most space in the index. So you're incentivized as an owner operator to issue stock all the time. Makes no sense. S&P is also not the best one to use because it's actively managed. You know, they have a committee, which has shown to be value destroying. But then again, like it's just the most representative phrase. I mean, if you say the Dow, it's even worse. That's even the most 
more nonsensical is the price of the stock. It's just price so, so crazy. No sense at all. But the amazing thing is, though, that the Dow Jones tracks the S&P 500 pretty closely. Well, I mean, I think what you're capturing is you're just capturing the exact same thing. I mean, the, you know, market cap weighting is price times shares outstanding, whereas Dow is just price. So you're getting a trend following index, which is a trend follower I love. You're guaranteed to own the winners and less of the losers. I mean, that's not a bad inherent strategy, but there's no reason not to include some tethered evaluation. I mean, my classic example that RIP John Bogle, I mean, I would love to go back and ask him or any of these guys that are just the pure buy and hold purists say, is there a point at which you would sell this investment that's long only? And Bogle, before he passed, would say he expected US stocks to do low single digits going forward for the next decade. But in my mind, I was like, and he did this in the late 90s where I think he had sold some of his US exposure. But to be able to go to someone who's a diehard buy and holder and say, is there a level there has to be a level which you would say this is crazy. I mean, Japan in the 90s, 80s, when it traded P ratio of 100, like how does that pass any common sense sniff test? Surely the best idea though is at the outset of your investing, you have to decide what your asset allocation is going to be. And so you already know I'm going to allocate X percent to the US stocks. I'm going to allocate X percent to international I'm going to commodities, bonds, and so on. And then when any part of your portfolio is working, you're taking money away from that and you're putting it into the parts that aren't working and you're going to get hopefully some mean reversion in there. The thing that makes that outperform is this Shannon's demon, which is Claude Shannon, the inventor of information theory, which is bits and bytes and on and off that sort of powers all computers. And he had this, uh, and you can show this, I think it's kind of one of the most interesting things in finance that you can have two anti-correlated assets that both go down over time provided that when one is going up, you take money away from it and put in the one that's gone down. And then when it goes up, you take money away from it and put it back into the first one. Over time, the portfolio actually goes up, even though the components of the portfolio are going down. And that phenomenon is known as Shannon's demon. I think that's probably a good example of commodities. I mean, there's been a lot of papers that depending on how you construct commodity portfolios with futures, commodities spot prices aren't particularly that strong of a performer, but because they, so many of them have nothing to do with each other and they just bounce around a super volatile that actually you get a benefit from that diversification. That's the reason that I implemented the short in the portfolio because the shorts should be anti-correlated to the longs. I say should be because in any given quarter, anything can happen. But over time, you're always taking money away from the winner putting it into the loser, whichever side of the portfolio that is. So it should be a compounding strategy that grows over time. Well, I mean, hopefully on the timing, you have done a good job of timing this. I mean, who knows? Impossible to time, right? But I'd rather be doing it now than five years ago. And I'd rather be doing it. And as a value guy, I look at the size of that spread. And I say, I'd, I'd like to start taking a big active bet on that spread closing, going back to a more normal time. I don't know when that's going to happen. I think it's impossible to know. But I do think that in, say, five or 10 years time, it's clear that I don't want to call down the market gods. I don't want to call down the thunder and say that just to prove me wrong, I'll keep it widening for the next five or 10 years. But I think that that's a reasonably good risk-adjusted bet now to be long, short value. As someone who does a fair amount of public writing, you got a new podcast, The Acquirer's Podcast. What has been sort of the general sentiment and mood feedback of the people you talk to? It could be investors, it could be individual people, it could be Twitter trolls. 
institutions? What's the general kind of lay of the land? I I think that value guys have been struggling. There's no question about that. So my podcast is focused on value investors and I like small independent value guys who are completely undiscovered off the beaten path, which is value is in and of itself is that kind of strategy. And I think that they've all struggled over the last decade, even doesn't matter what their style is, if they're more sort of systematic deep value like me, or if they're more discretionary Buffett style franchise type investors, it doesn't matter who they are. They've all struggled over the last decade. But I think that they're getting to that point where the opportunity set is very, very good for them, even though I think that that I said the decile of value before. I still think that's about 50% rich. But within that decile, there are individual names that are just way too cheap, that are just completely mispriced. And I think that they're feeling fairly positive about that, you know, embarrassed about the, the track record. Anybody who's kept up with the market over the last decade, and particularly over the last five years, is just an outright genius. And there are very few of those guys around in value world. And I think that with a better market, and a better tailwind rather than a headwind, you're going to see some massive outperformance from a lot of those guys. And I think that there'll be some more famous names come out of that group who are just completely unknown at this time. It's one of the funny things that it's easy to name guys who are 10 or 15 years older than me who sort of started in the early 2000s. They're all fairly well, you know, Einhorn, Ackman, you know, Monish, Puprai, Guy Spear, those kind of guys are fairly well known, but there's really nobody in the value world from my vintage, just because it's been such a, a rough run for value. So I think that it's a it's a mixed bag, sort of nobody's got a great track record, but I think that they think that the next five or 10 years are going to be very good, particularly relative to the market. Well, it's also been, this cycle has been a graveyard for old school, not even old school, but just managers that have been around. I mean, the amount of funds that have closed in the past five years it's incredible. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But did you go to Omaha this year? I did. Oh, was it sort of like a big self-help group where everyone... I mean, I think Berkshire's underperformed like eight of the last 10 years and stock picks. I'm also a trend follower. So we should get both sides in the same room and everyone can commiserate together. I think it's underperformed since 2002. Wow. I would say this. The thing about value guys is they are all independent and pretty mentally tough for the most part. So they all think that the best stuff is yet to come and that the market just hasn't recognized the value in their portfolios. And ordinarily, I'd be extremely skeptical about that kind of view. But at the moment, I think that that's probably fair, that the market hasn't really rewarded. So this has been a market where if you use Facebook and you buy Facebook, you've done very well. True of Netflix, true of Amazon. That first order thinking has been incredibly well paid for the last five or 10 years. But the guys who have one more step in their process where they go and say, well, I love Netflix, but let me see if I can value it. Or I love Amazon, let me see if I can value it, which is more the Peter Lynch style. Lynch said, buy what you know, but he also said, then go and do a valuation and make sure it's undervalued. If you did that second step, you've been punished for it for five or 10 years. And that is unusual going back decades. You've been paid to do that little bit more research usually. And so I think that we'll go back into a more normal environment. I don't know when we may need a, a big shakeout for that, for that to happen. But I don't think we need that. It might just be overvalued, becomes a little bit less overvalued and undervalued just starts working a little bit better. So you mentioned on the podcast, you guys kind of have a focus on, I may be putting words in your mouth, I thought you said weird and small and different. Who are some of the, the funds or guests that you've had to date that 
you think have been particularly interesting? We'll throw up some show links. Tim Travis runs T&T Capital Management out of Cota de Casa. He's a Californian guy, phenomenal track record, really smart investor, looks at really complicated. So Assured Guarantee is one of my holdings, also one of his, but then he'll go in and look at, so it's got some troubles in Puerto Rico. He'll go in and he'll look at well, let's look at the bonds. Let's look at the options. So he'll think through the full capital structure in putting these positions on. And he will go very, very well in a more kind environment for a value guy. So I, he's one guy that I'd- Where'd you say he is? Coda to what? Coda to cast. I've never heard of it before either. It's OC. It's in the OC in California. Weird. I've never heard of it either. I live almost in the OC. <laughs> Aren't you in Manhattan Beach? I know. I said almost. I said almost. <laughs> Same thing. Keep going. Another one is- Ben Clareman, he's at Cove Street Capital, which is which is actually based in Manhattan Beach. I've known Ben for a decade or so. He's UCLA MBA. Cove Street is like classic kind of value investors where they don't really care how the value is defined. They don't care if it's a Buffett-style compound or if it's a an earnings machine or if it's a undervalued assets. They'll they just go where the value is and then they'll they'll size their positions and trade them according to whatever is in there. They're running about a billion dollars. Meticulous process and results. I'm not entirely sure what the results are. I'm not talking about their returns at all, but they're not very well known, whereas I think that in a better market they will be much better known. How many uh, episodes have you done? I've just recorded my 13th. I just recorded Jim O'Shaughnessy oh, a few fun. hours ago, actually. He has his own podcast, but he only produces a show like once every eight months or something. I know Pat's got one, but I wasn't sure that Jim... Maybe in my needs, maybe like once a year. Man, that's awesome. He's like on the Mount Rushmore of, of quants. Another good one who I loved talking to because our strategies are very similar is Dan Rasmussen. He's pretty well known at the moment. I think he's got some good press and he's been on Real Vision a few times. But Dan's a sort of, uh, you know, it came out of Bain, the buyout shop, not the consulting firm, did some analysis on what drives the returns to leverage buyouts and found that basically small, levered and undervalued, as you'd imagine, that's what drives the returns to, to leverage buyouts, not anything that the, the private equity firm might implement in terms of improving operations. And so he has set up uh, Verdad advises and Verdad focuses on basically the kind of private equity style investments that you would try to take private. He just buys them on the public markets and you don't have to pay the takeover premium. You don't have any illiquidity when you hold them. You can tip them out at any stage. And he has a preference. The point where we diverge is he has a preference for debt on the balance sheet, whereas I have a preference for cash on the balance sheet. When his works, his will go very, very well because that paying down the debt is a very powerful way of generating returns. I just think that there can be a tipping point where you have too much debt. So I just prefer the more conservative end with a little bit of cash on the balance sheet. Well, it just seems to me that theoretically, it would be the same thing as just adding leverage, whether it's on the balance sheet or you leverage your portfolio. I would think that it would just show up. You have similar return and sharp ratio, I imagine, but I imagine it just it makes the portfolio more or less volatile. That'd be my guess. I don't know the answer to that, but- He doesn't short. And I think probably ideally the way that you do it is you don't put debt at the portfolio level, you put it at the holding level so it's non-recourse. But I think that with a short protection from the shorts, and I think that 130 is pretty modestly levered, you can get much crazier 150, 190, 3X type levered ETFs that seem to go okay. I don't mind being 130 long because I really like that heavy concentration into a deep value strategy. 
investors stay away from the 23x. I'll say it. Those are uh, fairly crazy to me. Although some of the marketing, I got a marketing email this morning. I don't know why these guys put me on these marketing spam, but it said, this is from the fastest growing ETF shop. We have a all weather fund. So let me get this exactly right because I tweeted it out of sheer exasperation. Exasperation. It says this ETF is an all weather fund that helps your clients win by not losing. Capital letters win by not losing <laughs> is a long only US dividend fund. I'm like, how could you possibly call this an all weather fund and win by not losing? I'm like, this has potential to go down 80 to 90%. And look at the metrics. You pull it up on Morningstar. This fund is a higher valuation than the S&P, which is already high on every single metric. I'm like, this is but it's smart. It's you mess the marketing people. I don't know what to say. I like Dan's comments partially because the private equity industry, in my opinion, this could be the catalyst or one of the accelerators during the next decline. So many people have placed bets on private equity to be the savior of outperformance in this low return world where magically you're going to somehow get 12, 15% returns. And Dan's been, I think, spot on about talking about the challenges and unlikely scenario there. But if all of a sudden all these institutions that have been betting on private equity be their savior with large percentage and just run into liquidity crisis. Right. Well, as Charlie Munger points out, so Dan's argument, and it's a very good one, is that the only reason that private equity looks uh, like it's got less volatility is because they report on a quarterly basis and they get to choose their own reporting metrics. Whereas if your positions like ours are a publicly traded, you get an update every, every second if you want one. But Charlie Munger points out that it's also attractive to the endowments and the people who are allocating because they don't have to show the big drawdown in the portfolio. So that's why they keep on getting the money. Well, it's like a wink handshake. I mean, I think like it's kind of a funny behavioral tweak where like everyone's in on it. They realize like if I only have to look at it once a year, it's probably not so bad. So we should start a fund that only values the portfolio on even years. I think that'd be, and everyone say, look, it has like no volatility, right. <laughs> you know. What else, what's got you excited these days? So you got the fun coming out as you look toward the horizon, 2019, 2020. What else is on your mind? What else are you thinking about it besides procreating? What, are you up to like five children now? Yeah, three, three and done, I think. The little fella's 16 months. It's a lot of effort. Even one is a lot of effort. Three is bananas. So I think that I'm done on the kids front. I think I'm gonna do this fund Maybe, maybe one more if this one works. And then I'll just be managing those funds. I don't have any great aspirations to have a family of ETFs. I really just want to be a value investor in a world where value investing works, you know? And I think we're coming into that kind of environment. So I'm excited about the future. I think I've heard from most of my friends that have lots of children that power laws apply there where they're like, oh, the ones that have two are like, oh my God, two is so much harder than one. The ones that have three are like, oh my God, whatever you do, don't have three children. And then after that, the people are kind of just insane who have four, six, eight. I think they're in their own category of, they're like short sellers. They're <laughs> I think two is harder than one, but I don't think three is any harder than two, honestly. that I think that the once you're broken, each one is just sort of one more into the chaos. One more into their lock cages at night. <laughs> Toby, it's been a lot of fun. Where can people find more of all your writings, all your goings on, everything you're up to? So acquirersmultiple.com is the blog where we write about any sort of interesting research we find. We put up links to the podcasts. It's got my books on it. So quantitative value, which I worked with Wes came out in 2012. 
deep value in 2014, concentrated investing, which is we did this analysis of the way value investors have typically concentrated and diversified and constructed portfolios because I think that stock selection is about half the battle. The other half of the battle is appropriately weighting and being diversified enough. And so that's concentrated investing. And then most recently, the acquirer's multiple, which came out in 2017. I'm on Twitter all day long because I have a sick Twitter addiction at Greenbacked, which is a funny spelling, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. And the fund is called the Acquirer's Fund. It's listed on the NYC and the ticket is Z-I-G, Zig, and the market zags. Toby, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Meb. It's an absolute pleasure. I love being on. Listeners, Toby promised if you email him and you're in Los Angeles, he'll buy you one to three beers, particularly <laughs> if you look into his new fund, the Acquirer's ETF. Zig, you got to bring the out. ticket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. We'll post show notes, links to everything we talked about today on mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Send us uh, some feedback at themebfabershow.com. We'd love to hear everything you guys have to say, positive, negative, and please leave us a review. We read all of them. I promise we'll appreciate it. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.